does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Kristen Airy joins us now uh, here on The Fan, uh, play-by-play voice for Valley Sports Midwest. Uh, uh, hi, Chris. Zach McCrite uh, here, and uh, and thanks for coming on with us. Let's first talk about, you know, obviously, uh, Lakers come to town tonight, and uh, Tyrese Halliburton. How close are we to knowing for certain that he is back, and, uh, and, and, and what kind of uh, minutes would you expect? Well, I would think we would find out probably around 515 that's when rick carlisle will meet uh with the media prior to the game and that's usually when we find out you know who's in and who's out uh they did not have shoot around earlier today they'll get together uh probably about four o'clock uh have a meeting and then be out on the floor at gamebridge field house for a walkthrough and then rick meets with the media at 515 but you know everything we've heard it and and if you go back a cup a few weeks it felt like uh, if everything went right that you'd see him right around the 1st of February, and that's where we are tonight. So, uh, you know, it's a big it's a big uh, four-day stretch for the Pacers. Lakers tonight, Sacramento tomorrow night, and then Cleveland at home on Sunday. So uh, you just know that uh, Tyrese is chomping at the bit. He wants to get back out there, and it, it would be good news for the Pacers to have him back. Chris, I asked Pat this yesterday, Pat Boylan, and, and he wasn't sure. I'm sure you're in the same boat, but I, I just want to ask anyway, has there any been indication or anybody you've talked to of if he does play tonight or whenever he returns, if there will be a minutes restriction to start off with? Yeah, no, no nobody said anything about that, so we really don't know. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure You know, the, the good news is in the last few weeks, it wasn't the knee that was giving him most of the problems. It was the elbow, the left elbow. And so he's had a brace on that. So I would think from a conditioning and an endurance standpoint, he's been able uh, to do that the last uh, you know week plus uh, because uh, he's not shown any restraint as far as you know working out on that knee. So uh, hopefully his endurance, his wind is good, but we'll just have to wait and see. I, I don't know since he's been out uh, you know since mid January that you would see him play thirty to thirty five minutes. But I think. If you can get him on the floor for you know twenty plus, that will be a huge help to the Pacers tonight. Chris Neri joins us here on the fan. Um, did you know how important? I mean, obviously, we all know Halliburton's important to the success of the Pacers. Did you know it was this important? But um, you know, where where you've only won one game in the stretch since he's been out. Did he? Did you know going into his injury? And if so, or, and if not, um, you know what has been that piece that you you just didn't know wasn't there whenever Halliburton left? Yeah, I think we knew, you know, maybe not to this extent. Uh, you do look at the, the schedule and you look at the calendar. It's been, uh, you know, pretty rough as far as, you know, quality teams that you've played. You played Memphis twice in that stretch. They're second in the West. You played Milwaukee twice in that stretch. They're top three in the East. Uh, you had Denver, who is the number one team in the West. So, you really had as difficult a schedule as you could have. And, and I think the one thing that you notice is just the quality of field goal attempts that you get. Um, in the 10 or 11 games prior to the last 10 or 11, the Pacers were shooting 48% from the field. And in this stretch without Tyrese Halliburton, they're at 42%. So a six percentage point difference. And also um, the three-point percentage is down. 
one of the things that's happened is is that the best wing defender has been put on Buddy Heald instead of Tyrese Halliburton. And so that's made it even more difficult for Buddy to get quality shots. I mean, he only got uh, four shots the other night in Memphis. And, you know, he's probably had three or four of his poorest games of the year without Halliburton on the floor. So I think Tyrese's ability, uh, especially in the fourth quarter where he's been so good this year, it's really been missed during this stretch. So maybe not to the point that, you know, the numbers are – are what they are, but clearly he is the leader of this group, and uh, he has been big for the Pacers this year. Kristen Airy, nice enough to take some time with us via the Motor Shop and Fishers hotline and the motorshop.com for all your residential commercial mowers, as well as snowblowers, power tools, services, equipment, and so much more. They got you covered at the Motor Shop and Fishers and motorshop.com. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Kristen Airy, longtime TV voice of your Indiana Pacers. On the positive side of that coin, Chris, what have been your takeaways in terms of bright spots obviously the record doesn't show up and maybe some bright spots or areas of growth that you've taken from the sirs over this 10 game stretch without Halliburton well we, we clearly saw TJ McConnell probably play uh, the best basketball of his NBA career in a stretch uh, before he didn't score on Sunday against Memphis he went nine of ten in double figures and uh, was shooting it at a high level and assisting at a high level and so that's good news because uh, his and, and he was playing big minutes he won't have to play those type of minutes uh, when Tyrese Halliburton comes back, but I think he can still be uh, effective. You know, Benedict Matherin, after being the Eastern Conference Rookie of the Month in October and November, it really hit a little bit of a wall in December. And Rick Carlisle would tell you that uh, it's incumbent on somebody to make adjustments to the game because all of a sudden there is tape out there on, on what you did so well um, in October and November. Well, we can say he had a really good January averaging nearly 20 points per game. His last five games coming into tonight, all 20 points per game or better. So clearly Matherin has, uh, you know, rebounded from what was, you know, a little bit, I don't want to say a disappointing December. I mean, he's had a heck of a rookie season, but clearly his numbers in December weren't what they were in October and November. But we saw his numbers in January against a very tough schedule uh, get back to where we saw early in the year. So I think that in 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 the consistency of Miles Turner, um, you know, he's played really, really well. Fifteen of his last sixteen in double figures. He had a strong stretch of twenty points per game. And you know, I had a chance to visit with him on Monday. I, I'm really happy for him. Happy for the franchise. He wanted to be here. He wanted to be a part of what they are building. And so I, I think Miles' play, even without Tyrese Halliburton, has been very strong in the month of January. And speaking of Miles Turner, I mean, the extension. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of give me a, you know, hey, I'm, the, I'm the new guy in here, right? Give me, a, give me a broader sense of what that extension means to not just the team as it stands today, but to the franchise in general. I think it means a lot. You know, a young man that you've watched grow up eight years with the Pacers, he's the longest tenured Pacer, that he wants to be here. And and I think that's uh, ultimately very, very important. I mean, he looks at Tyrese Halliburton, he looks at Benedict Matherin, and you have those three um, that you can build around and you can continue to build around. And this is a very young roster. I mean, at times they're closing games with two rookies on the floor and Nemhard and Matherin. And I think Miles sees what the future can hold with this group. And so I, I just don't know where you're going to go out and find somebody 
that averages 18 points, eight or nine rebounds, and blocks two or three shots a night and then alters so many shots at the rim. So I just think it's really positive for the franchise. I think it makes a statement. Uh, I think uh, there are going to be, a, in the future, there are going to be a lot of players out there that, that in free agency want a chance to play with Miles, want a chance especially to play with, with Tyrese Halliburton. So uh, I think Monday was a very, very big day, an important day for the franchise. Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot here because I did it to Pat yesterday. The difference is that I have the answers now, and if you were listening to the show earlier, then you too have the answer. Oh, but, man, but, you're going to do, do him so, dirty so, here. So I, I want to ask you the question first, and then if you get it right or wrong, either way, I want to get your thoughts on if this surprises you. Um, LeBron, I need 89 tonight to tie Kareem. Even as great of a player as he is, that's an all-time scoring performance. I don't think that's going to happen tonight. I'm sure you probably don't think that's going to happen tonight. But it made me think what the greatest single scoring performance was in that building at Gamebridge. Do you happen to know who holds that top spot? Uh, let's see. Uh, J.O. Uh, came, I mean, they took him out of the game when he had a chance, I think, to pass Reggie um, for the most points in Pacers history. Now, Reggie didn't do that at Gamebridge. Right. Uh, J.O. had, I think, somewhere around 55, I think. Um, you know, I've seen some big ones. Uh, Westbrook had a big number. Mo Williams of the box. He's a name that you wouldn't expect uh, to have a 50-point game. Uh, I've seen some 50-point games. I saw I saw Clay Thompson score 60 uh, at Oracle Arena yeah. in Oakland. Uh, so I'm going to say J.O., but there might be somebody else that well, has more I, than I, I, standing, I, up, standing ovation. I give a round of applause because oh not God. only did you get J.O. and Pat got two of three, but you swept the podium. Jermaine is 55. Westbrook had 54 in a loss, and then Mo Williams had 52. Um, but the next question, but I, you know, everybody that yourself, Mark Boyle, I mean, those that are covering the team on a nightly basis, you guys are walking encyclopedias. So probably a foolish follow-up question to ask, but are you surprised that Jermaine's the one at the top? No, I I think he might be one of the most undervalued and underrated pacer in the history of the franchise. I mean, when you talk to people that played with him, uh, and and I had a chance to watch him during his career covering him as far as a a media member, not at that point uh, involved with Pacers telecast. I mean, he was a terrific player. Um, So, no, I I guess I'm not surprised because, you know, he he could get the ball in the post. He had the ability to hit the mid-range shot. Uh, No, I'm, I'm not surprised with the way the game was played back in his day that he would be uh, at the top of the list. Chris Neri joins us on the Mower Shop hotline, the Mower Shop and Fishers, and the MowerShop.com for all your snowblowers, commercial and residential mowers, plus service and power tools. Uh, Pacers and Lakers, coverage starts at 6.30 tonight here on 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. Uh, And it's against the Lakers, of course, and so with the Lakers comes LeBron. Um, You know... It's it's tough to ask LeBron question after LeBron question that you haven't already heard. But I guess my question, I mean, you know, he, he's the what was it the first guy did I read and that to have at his age to have a twenty point triple double the other night at, at Madison Square Garden. Um, but I'm curious. I mean, you've seen him plenty of times, Chris. How has LeBron's game changed over the years, if at all, to you? Well, I think I think when you look at his ability to knock down the three, that's even as he's gotten older, I think he's probably gotten a little better with that because I think early in his career that was something that he he didn't rely on as much. Um, he still has the ability to get to the basket. I mean, he is like a freight train 
when he gets out in, in a fast break situation. Here's what's interesting, guys. If you look at the uh, NBA statistics uh, and you look at the top five players in fast break points this year, LeBron is at the top. But Buddy Heald and Benedict Matherin, I believe, are in the top five. And they do it a little bit differently. Buddy will do it from three-point range, right? He'll, <laughs> he'll stand behind the three-point arc in a fast-break situation and hit a three. Matherin is just going to take it right at the basket. So, um, you know, I just think, I, I mean, what's incredible is, is on his 38th birthday, LeBron scored 47 points. And since he turned 38, he is averaging 38 points per game. I mean, th- those numbers are just mind-numbing. Uh, when you consider what he's accomplished in his career. So, uh, you know, to, to, to see what he's able to do at his age uh, in, the, in, in how fast the NBA game is played now is, is really quite remarkable. Chris, last question on my end. Let's just say for the sake of argument that Halliburton comes back tonight, regardless of minutes restriction or not, but let's just say for the sake of argument for the question, what do you need to see out of this team as roles kind of shift back to not maybe entirely where they were before he got hurt, but you have obviously continued growth and improvement from the rookie class. What do you need to see on his return to the lineup for this team to get back where they want to be in the standings by the end of the season and in the second half of the year once the All-Star break's done? I think it'll be the quality of shots that they get on a consistent basis and being able to do that for 48 minutes. I mean, we saw them get off to such a great start on Sunday in Memphis. I mean, they led by 12 at the half. They led by 16 early in the third quarter. And then when Memphis really amped up the defense, the Pacers really didn't have anywhere to go. That also happened a couple of weeks ago when they went to Milwaukee. They played so well in the first half, but then when the second half came, they, they just could not adapt. That's one of the things that Tyrese brings to the table. He is able to orchestrate things in the fourth quarter Uh, The Pacers have been one of the better clutch teams in the NBA this year, but those numbers have really gone down since Tyrese has been out. So uh, I think offensively, uh, that's to me where it starts. I mean, they were averaging, I think, in the 10 games before he got hurt, about 124, 125 points per game. That's down about 10 or 12 points, down to around 113. So uh, I think the ability to get quality shots for 48 minutes is where Tyrese Halliburton helps you the most. Chris, gut feeling, how different, if at all, is the Pacers roster after the trade deadline? Um, you know, listening to, to Kevin Pritchard the other day, I, I, I don't think it's all that much different. I mean, I think they like the group that they have, and I think they know um, that they have a lot of opportunity or optionality, as Kevin Pritchard likes to use, this summer. Because with the contract extension to Miles Turner, They still have a lot of cap space this summer. Uh, They've got a lot of young players. So uh, I really think it'll look pretty much the same. And uh, I think if if there are changes to be made and additions to be made, I think that'll come this summer. Chris, we'll talk to you in a little while. Thanks, man. All right, thanks. Chris Denary on the Mower Shop guest line, the Mower Shop and Fishers, and themowershop.com for all your snowblowers, commercial, and residential mowers, plus service and power tools. Pacers and Lakers tonight here on The Fan at 6.30. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Big weekend in college hoops. A little bit of rivalry week injected 
into the veins of college basketball fans. Duke, North Carolina this weekend, as well as Indiana, Purdue. And joining us now via the Motor Shop in Fisher's hotline, he is a member of ESPN's College Game Day as a game day analyst, and you often see him throughout the week on College Scoreboard and College Basketball Live as they update you throughout the night. It is LaFonso Ellis. Nice enough to take some time with us. Fonz, how you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you, gentlemen? Doing great. Thanks so much for making time for us. Is uh, is Seth uh, causing years off your life, or, or is, is the coach taking care of you? No, Seth's my guy. He takes great care, care of me. It's so funny. I heard you say rivalry week. I think rivalry week, I think, I think that is one of the toughest two-word combination. Yeah, I, I just, know. I know. I, I, I love that you called. I love that you called him out on that. I, I was did. just gonna say, but it is that is so tough. How ESPN devotes a whole week to right. that phrase. How can okay. anybody say that right every single time? I so I'll give you a little. No, no, no. No. I, and I, and I, I'll be honest. I wasn't giving you a hard time for. I, I can't say it. It, it, it just doesn't come out right. So I have to go real so rivalry week. I can't say it fast. You got to throw that re in there. Rivalry week. There, there we go. go. <laughs> We're back. We're back. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Well uh, Lafonso, I want to lead off. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll save the jokes for later about the fact that uh, we wish that uh, the main event was IU and Purdue, but obviously it's Duke, North Carolina, and rightfully so. That's probably the top rivalry in college basketball. We, uh, Zach and I were discussing earlier in the show that list of those top rivalry matchups that you're going to have across the board in college hoops. Duke UNC is probably number one if you pulled the country, but but yeah. where is that mix and, and where does IU and Purdue fit in for you? Uh, well, being a Midwestern boy, IU Purdue is, is huge, and I live here in South Bend, Indiana, so uh, I'm not sure it gets much better than uh, Purdue, Indiana, especially this time of the year where we're midway through the conference season. And, of course, everyone, especially me, being a former big guy, uh, I want to see the matchup between Trax Trace Jackson Davis and Zach Eady. That's going to be really fun to watch. I I'm going to call Lafonso out here. I, if he if he were in any other market, any other big college basketball market that had a rivalry that was a tier below, admittedly a tier below UNC North Carolina, he would then also say that that market's rivalry is way up there and right next to UNC Duke. I'm not going to let you out that easy, LaFonso. So I need it right now. I need it right now. The top three, and it's okay to if you need to leave Indiana Purdue out, but yep. I need your top three college basketball rivalries. We, we need a national voice, uh, the definitive national voice, to tell us where Indiana Purdue fits because we're biased here. We got our, we got our colored glasses on. Well, remember, I'm biased, so I'll go number one, Duke, North Carolina, not even close. I mean, they share the, They played 100 games. They shared the series 50-50. Yep. Uh, the differentiation in points is less than 10, and, and obviously they're really right next to each other. So that's number one. But, again, I, I'm a homie. I'm a homer because I'm a Midwestern boy. I'm from East St. Louis, Illinois. So I'm going to go the border war between Illinois and Missouri because I live right there. I grew up right there on the Mississippi River. And then I would say Indiana Purdue, not close. Wow. Made the cut. Wow. I'll take it. Okay. All right. I'm in on that. Yeah, me too. Me, me as well. LaFonso Ellis, nice enough to join us via the Motor Shop and Fisher's Hotline and the motorshop.com. LaFonso, one of your coworkers in Joe Lenardi, has been tirelessly 
365. He knows the 24-7 cycle of college hoops. He's repping his brackets. He has nine teams in the Big Ten making the field so far. Obviously, plenty of basketball left to be played. But when you look at Purdue, you look at their body of work, he has them as the number one overall seed. Their resume speaks for itself at times. Is there any question in your mind right now if the season ended today that they're the number one team in the land uh, heading into March? No, uh, th- there's no question. 22-1, and one, you've already talked about the big wins that they've had already on the season, and they continue to not only play well at home, but continue to play on the road. And if you look at the teams who we can compare to them, the team that I thought was actually the best, and I still think maybe the best overall team in terms of talent, they're just young, is still Alabama. Yet Alabama's taken two losses and got blown out uh, in the SEC Big 12 Challenge. And uh, the other team would have been Tennessee, but Tennessee struggled was to score. They're, they're the most efficient defense in the country, but they struggled to score, and that was proven last night in their loss. And so, for me, uh, Purdue now stands alone as the clear uh, and undisputed number one seed. LaFonso, I know that and it's not just my generation, it's the 24-7 sports cycle that everybody wants immediate gratification and there's there's these you-have-to-win-championships-to-be-relevant type deal, but in the single elimination beauty that is March Madness that only one team's going to hoist that trophy and it can end in an instant. So I know this isn't fair. I don't want to go yeah. that route of you know, Purdue yeah. hasn't had that long-term yeah. success, but they've had into the second weekend of the tournament year over year. What if anything feels different about this Purdue team to let's even say just last year's squad that uh, fell to St. Peter's. I, I think it's clear this year is compared to last year. I, I can, and I saw it watching film. So I actually called Matt Painter and asked him, was my, uh, were my eyes seeing what, what, basically to confirm what my eyes were seeing. And so I asked, I was like, Matt, I just feel as good as this team is offensively, they don't seem to be as committed on the defensive end to the level I know you would want, and this is where I'm seeing them break down. And he absolutely agreed. And if you think about it, from the midway point of the conference season last year to the end, he kept saying, he kept saying, yes, we are really good offensively, but we don't always guard. And, and, and of course, that ended up being an issue for them uh, in the NCAA tournament, whereas this team, uh, this year's version, they just guard. I mean, each each guy takes it upon himself to be able to keep their guy in front. So whether it's the young freshman and Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer, those guys sit down and try to keep guys in front. And why is that important? Because if you, as soon as you allow one guy to get, get by you, now help has to come. Now your defense is in rotation, and, it, and one of the hardest things to do is to close out a shooter on the perimeter so now they're either going to knock down a three or they're going to drive by you. And now they're continually getting in the lane. They can pick up fouls, et cetera. This team, to me, just seems to be so committed on the defensive end and just happen to have that big monster in the middle who they played through in Zach Eady. So I feel though this team is not as offensively talented as last year's team, uh, I, I give them a little bit of the edge because in order to win a national title, you got to be good on both ends of the floor, and they, they do sit down and try to guard. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. ESPN's LaFonso Ellis joins us on the guest line brought to you by the Mower Shop and Fishers and themowershop.com for all your snowblowers, commercial and residential mowers, plus service and power tools. Uh, LaFonso, tell me if I'm wrong here. Um, I've kind of been of the ilk that uh, 
in today's basketball, with with all due respect to you, big guys, um, that you know it's careful, careful now. I know, I know, I know, I know. Hey, I, I can say that because I'm a big guy too, just in a different way. Um, but uh, with all due respect to uh, quote unquote us, um, we, I feel like there's been a. A, a changing of the guard for the most part in college basketball where and and really in all basketball where where the guards rule the roost right why if that if that is indeed the case in today's basketball and tell me if i was wrong there why is purdue an anomaly or one of the few anomalies yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I, I think they only become an ano- the the anomaly just because Zach Eadie's so big. I mean, he's he's seven four. Uh, most centers that we think of are somewhere between you know these days small ball centers, particularly anywhere from six nine to seven feet tall. But if we look back last year uh, at at the centers that played in the NCAA tournament uh, final four, and of course I'm gonna I'm gonna miss one because I. I you know, I'm getting to the age where I just can't remember all the time. But uh, you look at- <laughs> same, same boy. We are hey, two big guys right. and two guys with bad memories. Go ahead. Right, right. So, so we we take we we take Duke for example, who they have in the middle. They had seven foot Mark Williams, athletic floor runner, shot blocker, uh, immense lob threat, and uh, and a guy who really anchored their defense. Right, and then we look at uh, North Carolina. North Carolina, I think Armando Baycott, 6'10". Armando Baycott, um, excellent with his back to the basket, terrific passer, excellent offensive rebounder, floor runner, gets deep post position. So I would still argue, I would still argue that the in order to win the national title consistently, I do think that you have to have a level of post presence. The only team that I can think of in the last many years that didn't have really any uh, offensive production would have been Baylor. But I, that's why I think Purdue's position well, uh, even though they have more of a traditional seven-foot big, I still think they're in position to be able to win it all. Because Tennessee, Tennessee's got size galore. Alabama, size galore. So all of those teams, with the exception of Houston, that we could think of that we could potentially right now project as Final Four uh, potential teams, all those guys have, with the exception of Houston, have a traditional big either as their four or their five. So I think I still think a back-to-the-basket four, four or five is still very relevant in today's game. Fonz, I don't want to cut you short in terms of height before I lead into this question, but uh, most spots have you listed at 6'8 during your playing days. Is that accurate, or am I, am I, am I cutting off some, some inches there? want to make sure. Don't want don't to disrespect. I've learned that they, they do it differently today. Back in our day, they used to measure you with your shoes off. And so with shoes off, I'm 6'8 <laughs> and, and a quarter. With, shoe, with, with decent shoes on, with no platforms or, or no inserts <laughs> and that kind of thing, I'm probably 6'9", but I always just say I'm 6'8 because that's how tall I am. Barefooted. Sure. So Trace Jackson Davis and Zach Eady going to be one of the key matchups to watch for when number one Purdue comes to Assembly Hall this weekend. They've obviously faced off a couple times in the past, but they're right now at, at the height of their college basketball powers anyway. Both of them, Trace listed at 6'9, you mentioned in your last answer the 7'4 behemoth that is Zach Eady, but I know Trace Jackson Davis, and I know you. You're you're not you're not stepping down from that challenge. So how do you go about attacking the big man? How he's been playing so far this year, and just the the way it looks so easy for him at times. 
when so so Trace is going to obviously need some help on the defensive end just because he's so tall. That that's that's been in my mind the the greatest improvement in Zach Eady's game, his ability to be able to pass out of double teams because it keeps it simple. Most teams these days, and I don't know why they do it because it's a big disadvantage. They tend to double with their one, two, or three, and that plays right in the hands of Zach Eady because he's seven foot four. He just holds the ball up and throws it right over your head. So now it's a direct line pass which puts immense pressure on your t- uh, on even the help defense to try to close out on that. And that's part of the reason why they get so many open shots and so many drives for kicks uh, for open shots. So he's going to need some help on the defensive end and just on the offensive end. Whenever you're playing against a bigger guy, most often you have a foot speed advantage. So I look for Indiana to move Zach Eady around in post and in, in ball screen situations, try to get Trace Jackson on the move, diving to the basket, lobs, layups while he's on the move. And then when he does catch it in the post, especially on that right block where he has it, where he loves it, either a quick spin to get to to reverse it on the other side and 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 or turn and face him, give him a little shot fake to try to get him up, lift it a little bit, and then go by him. And it can't be a finger roll or anything like that because Zach Eady's coming. He's going to have to dunk that one or lay it in on the opposite side using the rim to protect it, to protect his shot. How do you get Eady into foul trouble? I don't even – I mean, or do you even? I mean, do you just flop? I mean, how do you do it? Yeah, it's hard to do. It's funny because, uh, to your point, I think that's what he also does really well now. He picks up very few silly fouls. Remember back in the day, he'd be a bit off-balanced and, and, and people would catch him moving. He'd not be in position properly. He's, find, he's putting himself in position really well early, and then he's just standing there with a raised arm and forcing the offensive guy to try to create contact without him moving up and into the ball handler. And they, he, it, It's just been fun to watch him improve over the last three years. And that, In my mind, uh, his passing out of double teams and his positioning on the defensive end to keep himself from getting silly fouls has been uh, really huge to me or really – uh, yeah, huge for me to watch him develop in those two areas of his game over the last two years. LaFollette and Zoe Ellis joins us here on the Midday Show, 93.5107.5 The Fan on the Mower Shop guest line. Um, I, I don't know how often, you know, I, I hesitate to ask such uh, drilled-in questions about local teams when you've got to do these sorts of interviews all the time, and, 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 and maybe I'm getting too in-depth, and please let me know if I am, but I wonder how much of a difference you've seen. I, I'm not a huge X's and O's guy, but how much of a difference you've seen in the offense and or defense of a Mike Woodson coached Indiana team compared to uh, Indiana teams prior to his arrival? I, I, to your point, I think they each take it personally. And, and they understand that in order to – I mean, you, you look – when I think of their lineup, Trace Jackson Davis, right, I, I, he, he's a good positional defender. I think his ability to block shots kind of overshadows uh, his work in terms of his positioning, uh, uh, what, what his body position is, where his feet are uh, defensively, uh, doing his work early, keeping guys from getting deep post position. So he's improved. Uh, obviously, this is Jalen Hood Shafino's first year, but you can tell for him, even though he – and scored and pass it. Uh, he, he really is intentional about trying to guard Trey Galloway. You know, hard work. Th- this is a group of hard. Race Thompson. This is a group of hardworking dudes who get after it on the defensive end. And when you score on them, it's not a oh we'll make up for it on the offensive end. It, it's 
man, I made that mistake. Sorry I didn't get there sooner. I'll make sure that I do that next time. So I think Mike Woodson has done a terrific job in getting these guys to play really good individual defense first. And then secondly, uh, getting them to understand when and where uh, to, to help when a guy's getting when the guy's been beaten and to not overhelp is rare. Maybe you'll see Jalen Hushafino do it on occasion, but that's because he's a, he's a rookie. But it's 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 rare that I see when I'm watching film that they overhelp, which leads to wide open three point shots. And so uh, I think that's part of the reason why you've seen the rise uh, in, in this group. And uh, obviously, if, if Xavier Johnson were there, it would even enhance their defense because he's a ball hawking defensive guard. Lafonso, we talked a little bit at the top of this conversation about the the pageantry of Rivalry Week and Duke UNC, obviously the the nightcap and the main event for you guys this weekend. Fifteen and seven and sixteen and six, respectively, are the Tar Heels and the Blue Devils. Tar Heels losing to to Pitt the other night. What is your takeaway for this installment, and what can fans kind of expect uh, from this latest chapter in the storied rivalry? Yeah, I, I I think because of the brands, the two biggest brands in in college men's basketball, Duke, North Carolina. I mean, even being a Midwestern guy who didn't watch a lot of ball on TV, I, I knew that of that rivalry. And so I think the pageantry around it is going to be uh, beautiful. I think the intensity is going to be what it always has been, uh, meaning <laughs> we talked about it earlier that, that – I mean, how about that? A hundred games played, and they're fifty-fifty, uh, and 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 the disparity in points is less than ten. That that's absolutely incredible. So it's even though they're unranked, it's still Duke, North Carolina. Uh, that that game's going to do a huge uh, viewership number, and and it, I think it's going to be. I do think it's going to be a great game, just in spite of. Um, neither of those teams being ranked and a guy who I don't know how many of your listeners have gotten a chance to see, but Kyle Filipowski uh, for Duke, the freshman, he'll be a lottery pick in this upcoming draft is fun to watch. He can knock down the three ball. He can play with his back to the basket. He's got a pull up game. He's an excellent offensive rebounder and he's got guard skills. So a lot of the guys, when he shot fakes, he'll drive it right. And if he can get you leaning, he'll cross that thing over really low, almost Kevin Garnett, like to his left hand to get to the middle of the floor and pull up. That's, that's going to be fun to watch. Jeremy Roach is back. Uh, his matchup with R.J. Davis is going to be uh, intriguing. And so there's just going to be really, really good matchups all over the floor. I think one of the keys uh, for North Carolina is Armando Baycott's going to have to stay out of foul trouble because when he gets in foul trouble, he's really their only guy that they, that you can post up and get some opportunities inside. And so when he goes out of the game, they, they tend to become a, a bit more perimeter-oriented. And if that happens, I think that favors Duke. But I think it'll be another close game. I think there'll be a bunch of exciting plays, and there's so many different uh, matchups to watch out there on the floor. And then on Duke's side, um, they, they have some – I talked about Jeremy Roach being back and commanding from the point guard position. He's scoring it well. He's moving well. Uh, a freshman, Ty Proctor, Tyrese Proctor, a guy who's got international experience. He came in lauded as a shooter, but hasn't shot the ball very well. But now all of a sudden, in the last couple of games, he's starting to shoot it. He's really starting to shoot it pretty well. And the final thing is Derek Lively, their seven-foot center, uh, five-star, 
Uh, I think he's consistent as the number one high school player. He's owning and championing his role. Early on, I think he was thinking he should be starting and he should be scoring. But lately, he's been owning and championing his role as a floor athletic floor runner, uh, tremendous lob threat, offensive rebounder, and defender. And so all of a sudden, Duke's uh, they're they're getting healthier and they're coming together. Final final note on them is. As of last week on Friday, those three freshmen had only played 55 minutes together on the floor wow. during uh, because of injury, and that's massive. And so you wonder about lack of continuity and all of that. That's part of the reason why they're not a top 25. They've just not played together. We've seen this matchup now without Roy Williams as Hubert Davis kind of left his mark on North Carolina. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on this. This is the first matchup without Coach K as John Shire is now guiding the Blue Devils. It probably doesn't matter to the players as much, but covering it is going to feel different. I, I think so, but but also, and this will be different though. Is John Shire played at Duke, right, and was part of the rivalry? Uh, uh, Hubert Davis played in the rivalry, right? And so that takes it to another level because now you you have former players who are now coaches of that team, and that'll just add just another, uh, just a little bit of kerosene to the flame. So, again, I, it's not top 25 Duke against top 25 Carolina, but because of the brands, the coaches, the players, it, 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 will, not, it, it will not disappoint. This has been great, LaFonso. I, I, I'm just curious, a little off topic here, but are you – when you get stopped in public now, are you no more for your basketball on the court or your television? It, it, it's 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 random. It's an age uh, thing, it, probably. It, 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 no, it's a, it's a mixed thing. So it's funny because if I'm in Illinois, many from oh, my yeah. high school days, more than college, are, are, are the pros. Um, as I go to the South, many many from because of ESPN it's and geography. when I'm in, yeah, when I'm in the larger cities, whether whether it's uh, you know Philly, New York, all of those are primarily for the, for the most part for my NBA days, and so it's a mixed bag. So, the most flabbergasted Lafonso Ellis has ever been by someone famous being excited to meet Lafonso Ellis is when. So people won't remember. Remember the name Jaleel White? Okay, he's an actor. He, he's an well. Let's see. The, yeah, that you were that you that that you were just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that popular person, that that famous person, is excited to meet me, Lafonso Ellis. Oh, in that case, it'd be John McEnroe, no question. I'm a big John McEnroe. All right, tell me about that encounter. Yeah, I'm a big tennis fan, and I was invited to go to a uh, fundraiser down in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And it was a, a gentleman named Dennis Ralston who played on the, on the tour for many, many years, was doing a benefit in Colorado Springs. And so he invited a whole bunch of uh, former and current tennis players down to the fundraiser, and they wanted to invite some of who they thought uh, were more popular athletes uh, throughout the state of Colorado. And I had the privilege of going and representing uh, the Nuggets. And so – if we ever meet each other, just I, I don't like that awkward feeling of of you see somebody 
and you or you see someone and you know they should you should know their name but you don't so there's this awkward pause as you get ready to shake hands <laughs> I already I always lead by saying hey Lafonso Ellis that kind of thing and so when I was going to do that to John he cut me off right away he's like I know who you are Lafonso Ellis I'm a big NBA fan and I watch all the time and it just happened to be the summer after uh, Denver Nuggets team became the first number eight seed to be the number one oh, seed yes so, yeah, yeah that was beat uh, the Sonics that, that was, right. Yeah, yeah that 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 was that was pretty cool, and Jaleel White is Steve Urkel from that show. Yes, back in the day. <laughs> yes, Family Matters. Family Matters. <laughs> I, and, uh, Jimmy, my co-host, has no idea I know, what we're talking I, about. I, I know Steve Urkel is, but I, I didn't watch it. Obviously, I wasn't around. But I'm aware of Steve Urkel. Come on. Yeah, we, we were in a circle, and he came we, out in L.A. and he came up to me and gave me five, gave me a hug. He's like, "Man, I'm a big fan," and so I'm going nuts. That's I'm like, awesome. Wow. I was like, "This is Steve Urkel." So I thought that my wife and our a gal who's a good friend of ours that worked for the Nuggets like a sister to me i thought they put him up to it (laughs) (laughs) and it turns out they didn't at all he just happened to be a big fan and i was deeply honored lafonzo that's awesome thanks for making time for us today always appreciate your work looking forward to the rest of the college game day season and uh tell seth we said hello will do thanks for having me on have a good rest of the day thanks you too that is Lafonso Ellis of College Game Day. Nice enough to take some time with us via the Motor Shop and Fishers Hotline and the MotorShop.com for all your residential commercial mowers, as well as snowblowers, power tools, equipment, so much more. They'll be covered at the Motor Shop and Fishers and the MotorShop.com. You can follow Lafonso on Twitter at Fonz with a Z, ESPN on Twitter. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Bob Blackman's on the line. I, I, I want to throw this out there real quick. Uh, he's the voice of the Boilermakers. Um, to you and, and to Rob. So I, I go to Top Golf not too long ago up there in Fishers. Um, uh, what do but Jimmy? What do you and 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 Rob for you too? What do you guys think about guy who brings his own set of clubs to Top Golf? Tool. Yeah, goober or no goober? Well, I guess goober then. Yeah. Yeah, Rob. Rob. Yeah. Why? Why would you bother bringing your own clubs to Top Golf? I mean, they provide them. I know they're crappy ones, but who cares? So you're at Top Golf. My man. Okay. All right. So we we're, we're good with Rob. I'm good with Rob. You good with Rob? You passed your vibe. Yeah, check. yeah, that's yeah. Good. You're, you're in. Good. Rob Zach McCrite. That's how I introduced myself to you. Um, you've never heard from me before, but it's a it's a pleasure now. Just an absolute pleasure to talk to you on the phone. Um, the, so last night, the Mason Gillis game, I guess, right? Um, overtakes the record for three pointers made in Mackey Arena history, uh, grabbing a record held. I thought it was cool last night. They did the post-game interview with Robbie Hummel, uh, one of the record holders, the previous record holders. Um, I guess where I would start is, obviously, I mean, you know, we're not breaking any news that Mad Painter is a, a great head coach. Um, but I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, that the game plan going in was for him to draw up plays for Mason Gillis. So what led to this ending up being the Mason Gillis game, besides him draining all the threes? How did he get the ball? Yeah, good point. Uh, there certainly aren't uh, there aren't any plays actually drawn up from Mason Gillis, <laughs> and the, be- the beauty of Mason is he understands that, and he understands that is his role uh, to not have plays drawn up for him. Uh, but really, it was just a matter of you know Mason was not in the starting lineup, which he has not been all season. Uh, Caleb First has been the starter at that position, uh, and Mason has played off the bench, and they've been a nice little combination there at, the, at that four position. Those two. 
uh, normally playing about the same amount of minutes. Uh, but Matt Painter's been really good this year about riding the hot hand. So if, if Caleb, Caleb's playing better one particular evening, he gets more minutes. Uh, Mason is playing better, as obviously he was last night, then he gets the minutes. And if you notice, Mason started the second half actually last night. Caleb did not. So just a matter of he had the hot hand. Um, yeah, there weren't any plays being run for him, quite frankly. It was a matter of uh, Penn State did something completely different uh, than they did in the first meeting back on January the 8th, and they chose to double in the post. Uh, sometimes tripled in the post, if you watch that game pretty closely, which left guys like Mason Gillis wide open. Um, and why not? I mean, if you're look, if you're Micah Shrewsbury, the head coach of Penn State, you're playing the percentages. And the fact is, Mason Gillis is a 28% three-point shooter in the uh, in the in the Big Ten games this year. 28%. So if you're going to double, if you're going to take a guy to double Big Zach, you're going to take Mason's guy to double, which is exactly what happened early. And Mason knocked down a couple wide open shots because his man had doubled. And next thing you know, that you know that rim looks like it's as big as a bushel basket. They can't miss. Um, but that's ultimately what happened there. I mean, guy got hot, and uh, the, the great irony for Mason is he was a very good three point shooter last year. A lot of folks forget that he was he was well over forty percent, right around forty four percent from three last year. But for whatever reason, he just has really struggled this season shooting the, the ball from three. Uh, no real answer for it. It's not like he hasn't been working on it. He has. Uh, but I was probably most happy for him to finally see some of those shots go through because, again, last year one of the better three-point shooters on the team. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but going from memory, he actually may have actually had the best three-point percentage of anyone on the team. So it hasn't been great for him this year until last night, and I was, I was just happy for him to see some shots go in because that was, a, that was an unforgettable performance for sure. Voice of the Boilermakers, Rob Blackman, nice enough to make some time with us via the Motor Shop and Fishers hotline and the motorshop.com. Rob, we had LaFonso Ellis on just before you, and he mentioned, I asked him the difference between this year's Purdue team and last year's Purdue team in his eyes. Long and short of it was he had a theory, and he asked Coach Painter about it in the offseason, and basically maybe the guard play was more electric perhaps last year, but that sometimes didn't always defend possession after possession after possession, particularly at the guard spots, and that's kind of what got them in the tournament last year, but that from Lufonzo's eyes this year, just across the board, a much more physical and not necessarily aggressive in the form of fouling, but aggressive in the point of staying in your spot and knowing how to control the tempo of the game. They're a better team defensively. It shows from the stats across the board, holding teams in general, all 23 opponents to this point to under 70. Would you agree with that sentiment? And is there something else or is that the biggest difference from this year's team to last year's team? I think that's the biggest difference. Uh, I would say the other big difference is certainly the improved play of Zach Eady. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he is just uh, not, and he was pretty good last year. I mean, he was an all-conference player last year. Most folks forget this, uh, but he's come miles even from where he was last year. But yes, defensively, uh, and Matt Painter said as much uh, on the coaches' show. Uh, he and I do that shows on, uh, do that show on Monday nights, and and it was just this past Monday night, actually, he was talking about you know last year towards the end of the season, it became very apparent that 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 team just was not going to guard. They just were not going to be good on defense. So instead of trying to stick the you know the square peg into the round hole, as Coach Maynard said, so we just tried to outscore everybody. I mean, that, and it, that, those are his words. You know, we just finally said that <laughs> with his defense. We're just going to try to outscore everyone. And look, it, it wasn't an all bad, you know, uh, philosophy. I mean, you, you won 29 games. You got to the Sweet 16, but it wasn't good enough, right? It just wasn't good enough when it was all said and done. So, uh, so what do you do? You you try to try to recruit some guys that can buy in on the defensive end. You try to do a little bit better teaching at the defensive end from a coaching standpoint. 
and then you hope the guys buy into it, and certainly this group has done that to this point. I mean, you mentioned the numbers about holding teams to 70 or less. You know, right now the uh, per-game average against Purdue in the Big Ten is 60 a game. I mean, that's awfully impressive in Big Ten play. You're only giving up 60 yeah. points a game. Uh, teams are shooting the three ball like 29% from three against Purdue. It's just um, – and then the fact that Purdue dominates on the glass. I mean, that's uh, that's also probably a part of it that gets lo- uh, lost in translation. Purdue has basically been the number one rebounding team in the country all season long in rebound margin. Um, and that, so that's a ton of extra possession. They're like plus 11 on the year. So that's 11 extra possessions in the game you get from rebounding. And if you take care of the ball the way Purdue did last night, only seven turnovers, I mean, all those extra possessions, it's hard not to win a game. If, if you're getting 12, 15, 18 extra possessions a game in a, when you're playing a team that's you know either equal to you, talent level, or maybe not quite as talented, it's awful hard not to win at that point. I mean, yeah. You've got to be really bad, really bad on offense to not win when you get that many extra possessions. So, But, yeah, I'm with LaFonso. Uh, I totally agree. Defensively has been the biggest uh, change for Purdue. I think they're top 20 right now in adjusted defensive efficiency, according to Ken, ba- Ken Palm. And last year that number was down around the 70s, 70s and 80s. So, yes, that's, that's probably been the biggest difference. And, and Zach Eady's improved play, well, I'd put that right there as well. Uh, uh, Rob Blackman joins us on the uh, Mower Shop guest line here on The Fan. Let me squeeze it down to just this season. I mean, <laughs> it's t- it's funny. I would have asked this question, like, what's been the difference between the wins and the losses? And you only have one loss. It's really tough to uh, ask it that way. But so, but you, I, I feel like you can tell the difference between the games that Purdue is, you know, you know uh, relatively struggling compared to the games in which they're not. And maybe it's just as simple as, well, there's a player who goes off and just has a has a shooting night. Sometimes the, when the ball just goes in, it's just easier to win. Um, maybe it's that simple. If it's not, what is the difference between the games um, that you are nervous about the Boilers' chances of winning, i.e. Uh, maybe Ohio State uh, at Ohio State, maybe uh, at Michigan State earlier, or uh, you know Maryland last week, compared to uh, the times you know, like last night. What's been the difference in those games in particular this season? Well, uh, that's actually a pretty fairly easy answer, Zach, and that is the games you're talking about are one possession games, which Purdue has won this year, which they did not win last year. That it's really that simple. Uh, these games that have come down to the final possession of the game uh, last year, Purdue had no luck in that category. I mean, look, you, you, you whether it was the half court shot at the horn at Rutgers to beat Purdue, or a half court bank shot from the left wing at Wisconsin. If either one of those two shots does not go in for the opponent, Purdue's a Big Ten champion last year. Plain and simple, they share the Big Ten title. If either one of those two don't go in, but both of them went in, and Purdue <laughs> saw a lot of that last year. Matter of fact, because I'm, I'm just thinking aloud that the home game against Ohio State last year, and I might be wrong here, but I believe that might have been Purdue's only only one possession game win last year. Maybe I'm missing one or two along the way, but at home, eighty-one seventy-eight yeah, last year. Mm-hmm. The home game, yeah, the the, the Jaden Ivey shot. Other than that, man, all those other one possession games went went the wrong direction for Purdue. And it's you know you kick yourself. I listen to those coaches and those players after the games, and uh, they're kicking themselves about man if we would just made this play here, this play there, and and but but they didn't. They didn't. The fact of the matter is, you didn't make that play, so you lose the game. Well, guess what? This year they are making those plays. That one play here or there that makes a difference. Think about that game in Ohio State earlier this year. Ohio State has Purdue dead to rights. There's no reason Ohio State should not win that game. 
They have the ball. They have the lead. All they have to do is take care of the ball and make a couple free throws. The game's over. But what happens? Ethan Morton gets a steal on the full court pressure. Uh, Purdue's able to set up a play offensively. Fletcher Lawyer makes a three, and all of a sudden you walk out of there thinking, man, we just stole one. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that was happening against Purdue last year, those kind of things, where Purdue couldn't – where that other team was stealing a win from Purdue. So uh, it's nice to see that uh, you can flip it around And because I know it was so excruciating last year. All, <laughs> Purdue only – look, you look back at last year, uh, Purdue was – 29 and 7, maybe 29 and 6. I don't remember exactly. But anyway, every one of the losses outside of the game at Michigan, which was a blowout, and that, that was a blowout, 24 point loss. Every other game went right down to the wire. Um, so just think if you win two, three, four of those, if they go the other direction, you, you end up having a hell of a season. Um, so, but that's the difference, Zach, right there is the one possession games that are coming down to the final possession of the game. Last year, Purdue was not winning those games. And this year, at least to this point, Purdue has been winning those games. Rob, this weekend it'll be another chapter in the storied rivalry of Purdue and Indiana in Rivalry Week. We know what this matchup is about at its core, but when you look at this installment of it, number one, Purdue against number 21, Indiana. Obviously, the Hoosiers fell to Maryland earlier this week. What are your expectations and your just overall analysis going into this one at Assembly Hall? Well, it'll be it'll be a fist fight, and it should be, because both these teams are not only very talented, but they both they understand what's on the line here. Um, I, now, to show you how silly I am, uh, my broadcast partner, Bobby Riddell, last night, when we were not on the air, I said, man, I said, man, I'm, I don't know about this Indiana game. They, they just lost to Maryland. They might be a little bit on edge for us now. And he's like, you idiot, they're going to be on edge no matter what. what about? <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're right. I don't know what I'm thinking here. But, yes, um, it's going to be – look, these types of things, we build them up so big, and then sometimes they just fizzle out and they don't end up being the, the game that we thought they were going to be. I do think this game is going to be a great, great game. I mean, just look at the rosters. You have two first-team All-Americans about to go head-to-head against one another. I can't imagine the season over is over that Trace Jackson Davis and Zach Eady are not both first-team All-Americans. I don't. There's no scenario where I see that happening. So you're going to have two first-team All-Americans going against one another in a Purdue-IU rivalry game. And, yes, I know it comes down to just more than one-on-one basketball. And there are going to be some players on the periphery that ultimately we're probably going to make the the ultimate decision on who ends up winning this game. But, I I mean, as far as hype goes, um, and I know Duke, North Carolina, they're playing this weekend, and that's great, but there's no way there's another game in the country that's going to have more uh, more hype surrounding it and should be as entertaining as Purdue and Indiana is going to be on Saturday. I mean, that, that is going to be, the, for at least for the moment, that's going to be the game of the season. You've watched IU enough to answer this question. Would you, if you were coaching Indiana, would you double Edie? Um, knowing the personnel that they have, at least to start the game, if it's me, if I'm Mike Woodson, obviously I'm not. He's a lot smarter when it comes to basketball than I am. I would take my chances with Trace uh, guarding Zach one-on-one in the post. Uh, absolutely. And then just try to guard produce three-point shooters and, and see how that works out. Um, if it were me. Now, look, there, <laughs> I've heard this said by numerous coaches that have played Purdue this year. The problem with Zach Eady is you think you have a really good plan going in, and then you get about five minutes into the game, and you're like, nope, this is not going <laughs> to get You get punched in the throat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, now you're scrambling to try to figure out what you should do. Um, but, yes, I, w- I would not be surprised. I guess I should put it this way. I would not be surprised if when that game starts, 
they do not double and, and, and just let Trace Jackson Davis go one-on-one with Zach Eady and, and see how it works out. Michigan did that with Hunter Dickinson um, and played him pretty much straight up. I mean, that was, you know, those two guys both had really good games. It just happened. So it happened Purdue's peripheral players had a little bit better games than Michigan's did. Um, so that's a pretty good comparison there where there was Hunter Dickinson uh, for Michigan. So that would be my guess because that's how Michigan guarded us. Uh, and obviously Hunter Dickinson and, and Trace Jackson Davis are pretty similar as far as players. So that's what I expect to see on Saturday. But uh, as Coach Katie liked to always say, expect the unexpected. Uh, <laughs> So that's what I'll be looking for Saturday. Amen to that. And uh, I'll be happy to take you as a guest to, to Top Golf anytime with me, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> have a great have a great broadcast, brother. Okay, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, okay, man. thank you. Rob Blackman, voice of the boilers here on the Mower Shop guest line.